Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello there, and welcome to this week's Secret Life of Cookies. I'm going to say something to you that you might find incredibly surprising. This podcast will probably be the funniest podcast you've ever heard about nuclear annihilation. Yes, folks, my guest is the delightful and hilarious Joe Serencione. And by hilarious, I also mean he is very, very thoughtful on the subject. He doesn't take any of this stuff lightly. However, we do talk about it in a lighter manner than you might expect. We also bake very delicious Blu-ray muffins, if I do say so myself, and I think he might say so too, um, that conjure up happier times, like being on the beach in Nantucket, as Joe himself will discuss. He also lets us know just how afraid we should or shouldn't be about the possibility of nuclear war in the most delightful way possible. Seriously, I hope you'll join us, and I'd be grateful if you could leave a nice review on the Apple Podcast Store because it really does help bring attention to the podcast. Uh, please subscribe if you, so you don't miss an episode and make a blueberry muffin and settle down and enjoy this conversation about nuclear war. I am here with Joe Serencione, which is, okay, let's try pronouncing your name again. In Italiano, it's Cirincione, but here it's Serencione, Serencione, like minestrone. Yeah. I was raised by a mother who only pronounced things in the real Italian because she was from, I don't know, New York City. And it was Cirincione would be how she would insist that I did it. Just in the same way that if you spoke to my brother, David, you would hear David Rothkopf. (laughs) And if you spoke to me, you would hear Marissa Rothkopf. Oh, there you go. So, you know. Little internecine sort of family thing going on here. All of us trying to assert our own heritage or lack thereof or pronunciability. Anyway, yes, yeah, I, yeah. Hello to Joe Cirincione, <laughs> who probably also pronounces bruschetta correctly as well, which right. many people do not. Because <laughs> you know the difference between a CI and a CH in yes. proper Italian. But yes, the thing you yes. also know a lot about, and that's why you're here today, is nuclear arms, nuclear proliferation, which is almost as hard to say as Cirincione, and use of tactical nuclear weapons, because that's what you're an expert in. How does it feel to be an expert in that today? Well, you know, I didn't intend to get into this. You know, I was a, 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 a national security expert. I came down to Washington and went to Georgetown University for graduate school and was learning the general theories. But then I got to work on the House Armed Services Committee, and they assigned me to nuclear weapons oversight. And and this was during the Reagan years, the last time people thought we were close to a nuclear war, the last time people thought that that the world could blow up because of confrontation between the U.S. and the then Soviet Union. And suddenly, man, that was everything. And so I just delved right into it and learned um, how to build a bomb. And missile interceptors and bombers and submarines and every the whole schmear. And uh, it's been my career ever since. Fortunately, there are rarely times like this where the threat level rises to the extent that the general 
public is very concerned, and I would say rightfully so, about the risk that a conflict we're in could go to the nuclear level. So I'm, I'm currently, I am quite busy talking to yes. people, and I'm delighted to be able to talk to you about this as I actually get to do something productive. <laughs> I actually get to make something and not talk about how to destroy everything. <laughs> in which we make things, secret life of cookies, in which we make things while talking about the destruction of things, or as we like to say, the possible destruction of things. Uh, I um, Today, we won't be building a small nuclear bomb at home because they're not as delicious to eat as blueberry muffins. Um, and you, you asked to, to bake blueberry muffins, and yeah. I am happy to join you on that quest because I think getting the like a perfect, my idea of a perfect muffin is it's a little cakey, it's moist, it's sweet, not too sweet. It has a whole bunch of different flavors, and for blueberry ones are packed with blueberries. What's your dream blueberry muffin? Well, so... My dream blueberry muffin is a Nantucket blueberry muffin. It's something you get okay. early in the morning when you wake up after a long night of drinking at the bar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and you go down and you, and you walk down to get your, your delicious fresh food coffee and a beautiful, fluffy blueberry muffin. You know, I tend to like the lighter ones that, that are more airy with those big tops that come out with sugar on top, you know, and it's a little d- decadent, but uh, you love it. And you have a cup of coffee or a latte and in a blueberry muffin in the morning in Nantucket watching the sun come up over the beach. And, you know, who's, what's better than that? What's better than that? And I think, do you find that now that you have all the knowledge that you do about nuclear destruction or nuclear weaponry, that you need to have a blueberry muffin and a coffee in the morning? Like, how does, how does a guy like you, how do you sleep at night? Because we used to sleep at night because, and this is what I, you know, I have a, teenage son who is very, you know, aware of what's going on in the world and for better or for worse. And in this case, it's sort of worse because he's like, oh my God, what about, he doesn't talk like that. He would say, should I worry about nuclear annihilation? And I said, oh honey, tra-la-la, mommy says, don't worry about a thing. Do you know what mutually assured destruction, you know, is? And don't worry. That's, and that was how I slept after I watched The Day After in 1983, right? I watched it with yeah. all my high school friends and we sat there and my parents were like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, I have to. And everybody was, we were all terrified. And I remember going home and going, blah, 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 blah. and my yeah. father saying something wise about mutually assured destruction. It, does that still work as a sentence, a line to sleep at night or does it change a little? <laughs> well, I. It doesn't keep me up at night, you know, partially because I, I, I think about it so much during the day. <laughs> and a good, you, don't have a, you don't have a drinking podcast, do you? Because <laughs> I find that helps. <laughs> yeah. No, we do. Um, we definitely, um, Fridays, I have been doing cocktails occasionally. Some of oh, there you go. Carol's podcast, and we talk about, um, basically, on hers, you talk a lot about sex and cocktails. But um, I think well, when cocktails I, when really... I, when I first <laughs> yeah, went on, I... Um, I, I knew Rachel Maddow back when she was doing uh, Air America and met her and was on, I think, very early on when she did her show at MSNBC. And we talked about this, of course. 
And uh, she made me a drink. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, she's a cocktail expert, and she used to make yeah. drinks on the show. I don't know if you remember in the early days, she would end her show with making do. a drink. So that, that helps a lot. Um, and, you know, what I find about baking and cookies and treats, and, you know, I often will go for walks in the afternoon, especially just since the pandemic, and we'll go for long walks and end up at uh, my local bakery and, mm. you know, get, get something delicious to treat myself because, you know, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> sure you got to worry about the extra calories but that's tomorrow's problem oh, that's tomorrow's problem and you never know okay well i think that concludes our episode of the secret life of cookies i'll be on a non-stop baking binge until god knows when um so let's just pause that conversation for a second and focus on what we're doing so that um the calories, no, the um, energy going into this is right now, I think to me, this I have gone through a slew of blueberry muffin recipes yeah. in order to arrive at this one, which my neighbor up the street, I'm just pointing, has said the best one she ever had. So Rashina oh, um, gives it her seal of approval. I've heard people complain that blueberry muffins are not cake. They're muffins, as if cake and muffin were a different thing. And my, what I need to tell you is they're not, right? Maybe you can use a different technique, like you can use melted butter. But here we're using a traditional creaming method, butter, sugar. I add lemon zest at the beginning. And the butter and the sugar, we whip it for like, or cream it for two minutes to make sure it's fluffy enough so that when the, that there are pockets of air that can be filled by that basically, should we use the word exploding? baking soda and baking powder oh right of that's course, what the baking soda does that's why there's baking soda in this recipe the gas expands right. ah. the gas expands and baking soda is double acting so it starts to um, do its work with the dry ingredients right right now you um, we whisk them all up together in a bowl and it's the minute it hits the wet ingredients it starts doing its thing for the first go and then you put it in the oven and the heat does, it goes for its second round of explosiveness. And in this recipe, we also have baking soda because we have an acid element. And so if we had used just milk instead of yogurt, we would have just ah. used baking powder. But you need the baking soda to balance the acidity of the baking or to work with the acidity of the yogurt that we're adding or sour cream. So as oh. we sit here and talk about this, I want everyone to know that we're doing this mainly by hand. The creaming was done with the machine, uh, we, with the machine, the KitchenAid mixer for me. I'm now beating in the eggs one by one, and then we're going to- Oh, yes. In. Why one by one? Tell me why one by one. Because if you look at it with just one, it gets pretty splooshy in there, right? Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's really just so that you can make sure that it's getting mixed in properly. Um, and then you're not introducing too much liquid at once to your sugar mixture, your sugar butter mixture, because otherwise it won't blend in properly. Sometimes you get a curdled look. So right now in the world, as I beat my fears out um, with the egg, Putin is using the threat of tactical nuclear weapons. And all the, the professionals like you have said things to us like, yeah, we actually should be worried. So why am I worried about this? So first, let's take a deep breath. 
and let's enjoy ourselves. It's a beautiful day where you are, where I am. It's a great day. We're happy to be alive. This is great. Life is wonderful. There Joe, is a very Joe, small Should chance. I start drinking? Should I start drinking the vanilla extract <laughs> now? <laughs> crack open that vanilla extract. Okay, folks. It's gotten to that. Has it gotten to that point where we need to drink vanilla extract? <laughs> oh, right. What are we putting the vanilla extract in? Um, I've uh, added after the eggs are blended. After the eggs are blended. Okay, good. And I'm putting in one and a half teaspoons. Great. This is going to be very vanilla-y. It should right? be. I'm a little... With vanilla and garlic, I don't tend to measure. I tend to go, oh, did the recipe that I'm working with say X? Add more. <laughs> I'm going to oh, do a slight, a slight twist on this one. Your recipe calls for lemon extract, but I'm going to actually add fresh lemon to this one just to see how it turns out. Oh, good. Because I don't have lemon extract. So uh, hard to find, actually, in the store I went to. But anyway. It um, is hard to find. Okay, I but new because I made I made well, the other uh, week, which is one of the things we could have made, but it's not really baking. We could have made uh, what was it? Zeppoli, Zeppoli de San Giuseppe, the Saint Joseph's Day yeah. pastry. But that was a little too complicated for me. I don't think I could get that loft and the cream. It's a delicious pastry, but blueberry muffins. You teach me to make a good blueberry muffin, <laughs> and there isn't a house in this town I won't be welcome in. <laughs> you know, exactly. Exactly. show up for brunch with a half dozen or a dozen blueberry muffins. I'm, you know, I'm everybody's favorite <laughs> guest. Let's fresh, go. Fresh and warm. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter if dear Joe is talking about the end of the planet. He's brought warm blueberry muffins. <laughs> and we can put up with the nuke talk. <laughs> okay, so back to this. So, How worried should you be? Yeah. You should not be very worried. You should not be very okay. worried. There's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a low probability event. It's what we call a low probability, high consequence event, meaning there's a small chance that this is going to happen. The problem is there's not a zero chance. And so mm -hmm. that should worry you. You know, it's like, um, I hate to do this on a baking show, but, you know, the chances of uh, Kentucky being knocked out in the first round of the NCAA basketball tournament, a number two seed being defeated by a number 15 seed is very small. Hardly ever happens. But it does happen. <laughs> that no. was a really bad example because that happened. Or that happened. let's use a let's use a better example. The idea of let's say the the Hokies of Virginia Tech, my daughter's uh, college, exactly beating Duke. Big right. surprise. Right. right, you play twenty games like that, and 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 uh, Duke's going to win almost all of them. And the key is almost. Because there's that low percentage, high consequence event that does happen. So that's what we're worried about now. And we're worried about not a bolt out of the blue attack, not the thing from the 1980s that worried us. Okay. Remember the day after people were in Kansas or wherever, I think it was Kansas, and Kansas. all of a sudden they see the ICBMs that are in silos launching and everything takes it. And it was out of, it was out of tensions were building up, but nobody expected mm -hmm. this. So we're not worried about a bolt out of the blue. What we're worried about is the conflict in Ukraine, which has U.S. and Russian forces close to conflict, spilling over into direct conflict, which has never mm -hmm. really happened in the history of the nuclear age, even before U.S. and Russian, U.S. and Soviet forces have faced off, but never engaged in sustained combat. A couple of skirmishes during the Korean War, there was an incident in Syria a few years ago. But it was quick and over and not 
particularly consequential. Sustained combat means that now you're committed and now you're in battle and you're in a battle to win the war. And if you're losing that war, mm-hmm. both countries have policies that call for escalation. We call it integrated deterrence. The Russians have a policy they call it escalate to de-escalate, right? So they, yeah, and yeah. The, the idea is that you're losing and you try to convince the other side that they better back down because you're willing to go all the way. And to prove you're willing to go all the way, you go some of the way, you know, like being at a poker table and you raise the bet, you you know, and the other guy sitting up says, well, is he bluffing or not? Or is she bluffing right. or not? And, you know, if you bluff at a, you call somebody's bluff at a poker table and you lose, well, you lose the hand, maybe you lose the game. You call somebody's bluff in nuclear war, you lose the planet. And that's yeah. what you're worried about. You're worried about Putin feeling that he's losing the war. Therefore, he can't afford to lose this war. He has to escalate. And he goes to, let's say, first, more, bomb- more horrific bombardment, which is what I expect. Mm-hmm. Maybe the use of chlorine gas, a chemical weapon he used in Syria with the Syrians to go, that goes heavier than air. It goes down into the shelters and kills people. Doesn't kill a lot of people uh, compared to the bombardment, but it's a terror weapon and you're terrifying people. And then if that doesn't work, well, then you do what the Russians' doctrine calls for. You shoot off a nuclear weapon. It doesn't have to be tactical. There's nothing in the doctrine that says it has to be battlefield. It could be long range. It could be a demonstration shot. He could shoot off a nuclear weapon over the Black Sea just to signal to the West, look, I am serious about this. Back off. And the question is, what do you do then? What does the West do? And so sometimes in war games that we play, I know of one where the, at the deputy level, the deputy assistant secretaries did back off. They said, no, that's it. We're not going any further. They were overruled by the senior people in the game who then went mm-hmm. nuclear, believing that the adversary would back down. The adversary responded with more nuclear weapons, and it escalated to global thermonuclear war. And that's what most of the games indicate, that each side thinks that they can make the decisive final move. We call it the fallacy of the last move, thinking that mm-hmm. you get to decide when the game ends. Well, you don't, right? You know, and the as they say in uh, that famous Matthew Broderick movie, you know, <laughs> the only way to win is not to play the game. And so that's what Joe Biden is doing. He's not playing this okay. game. He doesn't want to do it. He's doing exactly the right thing right now. And we're lucky to have him because Putin raises the threat level, he says, of his nuclear yep. forces. He makes explicit nuclear threats. And in the process, Biden doesn't respond. He doesn't engage in the tit-for-tat nuclear brigadeio that, that, for example, Donald Trump did with Kim Jong-un. Remember that? April 2017, fire and fury. Mm -hmm. My button is bigger than your button. All this macho. But I love you, brother. I love you you like a brother. Yeah, then then they exchange (laughs) love, right? And so from his point of view, that kind of thing worked. Well, you know. I don't think anybody, but Biden is not playing that game with Putin. He's not raised our alert level. There's no movement of nuclear forces. People should know that. Nobody is mobilizing forces. It's not like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where ICBMs are being flushed from garrison or subs sent to sea or bombs loaded on bombers. Nothing like that. We're still at the rhetorical level, the threat level. And Biden is carefully measuring not just his responses, but also what kind of aid we give the Ukrainians. And this is the toughest thing, because, you know, how could you watch Zelensky's speech to Congress 
and not be moved to tears and not right. want to feel like we got to give this guy everything he needs. I know some people on the left think that we're somehow the U.S. is manipulating Zelensky. He's our puppet. Or, I mean, this is true. I just gave a talk last night to this group who's convinced that Biden could end this war in a minute if he just proposed a good, a reasonable peace plan. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, not just on the right. And a lot of the left are so anti-war that they think both sides are to blame. And, but, but it's not that way at all. It's not that way at all. And so, so Biden, while pursuing diplomacy, is very careful not to commit U.S. forces, NATO forces, or even heavy equipment. And this is why they don't want to send jet fighters. There's logistical okay. reasons, too. But you don't want to go too deep into this war because then you're in direct confrontation or we could be perceived as being in direct competition. And then the thing escalates out of control. So you're trying to control the lower levels of the conflict at this point. So that Putin would just probably relish us sending planes in, right? I mean, he would, for him, anything that shows us escalating it means that he, in a sense, is winning this conflict. Excellent point. Yes. And there's, there are theories out there. Remember, all this is just theories. These are our basic understanding of the information we're getting, but we're, we're speculating here. Everybody is. Is he is Putin bluffing? Well, you're guessing. Should, could we get away with sending nuclear fighters? Well, maybe. I'm not nuclear, jet fighters, you know, maybe. Yeah. But Putin, I believe, would welcome NATO commitment. He's been portraying this fight already as a conflict between the United States and the aggressive, uh, the aggressive United States who is attacking Russia, who has designs on Russia. And that's the way Russian TV is playing it. So they're right. standing up not just to the Nazis in Ukraine, but also to the West that wants to destroy Russia. So that's the lie that they're all right. Imagine a nation right. full of Fox News and all you got was Fox News. That's what Russia is like right now. And so I, I am uh, on a campaign to stop calling it Fox News and just call it uh, Fox Television Network. But that's another story. Well, I shouldn't say this because I'm, go I'm going on Fox later this afternoon. OK, uh, with, well, with one of their best reporters, a guy named John Roberts. He's a good guy. OK, there I go. So some people believe that having direct NATO involvement would help Putin because then he would rally the whole nation behind him. And it'd be a, right. then, then the Russian forces who are suffering from low morale would say, oh, we're fighting NATO. We're fighting the United States. Mm -hmm. Now we know why we're here. Putin was right all along. And so that's a very good strategic reason not to give Putin what he wants. It's also a very good move to keep the, 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 the war from expanding to the nuclear level. Let's pause before we get to nuclear level. Well, and my batter's getting about... nice and fluffy right now. So tell me, <laughs> I want to know what right, yours looks like. So you have, have you put your eggs in already? Yes. Are you still, oh, that's beautiful. Right now, have you added flour? No. Okay, got so flour. I think you should start, this is one of those things where you add half, a third of the flour, then half the yogurt, I mean, one after the other. So fold in, because this is the part where you don't want to overmix. Right. You know, like when you're making pancake batter and they're like, it's OK to leave some lumps. You don't want to leave lumps, but you also don't want to toughen it up. OK, a little bit of that okay. flour mixture. And before yes. you put down that bowl, put a little bit of that flour mixture on top of your blueberries. Blueberries. Everyone, he's running to his freezer and getting blueberries. He's reaching in. He's come out with a bag of frozen blueberries because we all love frozen blueberries better now, than fresh this time of year. Now Tell me why, because I've got the fresh blueberries, but you say frozen. The frozen are picked at 
peak in places where the blueberries are, you know, are, are growing in a don't have to travel all the way from South America to be here. The blueberries that we have now have, have you tried one? They're sort of yeah. sour. Yeah. And even, even though the baking of them makes them juicier, I found the muffins that I made with the frozen berries were that much sweeter and more intensely Nantuckety blueberry. Oh. This is much more su- that summer feeling that you have where you're like, oh, God, blueberry is the best fruit that ever happened. <laughs> and, baked, and baked blueberries are the even better thing. So the, the process is that you're going to gently fold in the flour. And when you're done with that, you're going to gently fold in half the yogurt and follow that with. So it goes dry, then wet, then dry, then wet. And then finally, the last bit. You put in the dry, and then I pour the blueberries on top, so I'm only doing one last fold. And why am I putting the flour on top? Why do you put? Why, why do you fold it in? On, on the blueberries. What does that do? To help keep them from sinking. It gives them a little bit, like it's like creating like little crampons for them to make keep them from sinking all the way to the bottom of the batter. The ah. nice thing about this batter is it's quite thick. So if you sometimes if you make like a melted butter batter. A melted butter batter, the batter is thinner, and you're more likely to get this sort of uh, your blueberries weighing down the bottom. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> As a kid, were you afraid of nuclear war, oh. of nuclear annihilation? So, yeah, we all did the duck and cover drills. And one of my mm-hmm. earliest memories of nuclear weapons is reading the serialized version of um, Failsafe in the Saturday Evening Post. Which, by mm-hmm. the way, completely dates me. Because you know, if you're if you're if you're under forty, you have no idea what the Saturday Evening Post <laughs> is. But I looked forward to it every week, and I must have been I don't know, eight, nine, and I was just reading this Saturday Evening Post, and it was just a fascinating story. And I thought, what, what, what? Why would we do this? Why would you? And and that was my first experience. And of course, I was I actually lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that was. Terrifying. So yes, all my early associations with nuclear weapons were were terrifying, which is why I never bought in to the view of our nuclear commanders or the dominant nuclear theory that we have, which that nuclear weapons are our biggest asset. Nuclear weapons are our greatest strength. They provide security. Or as the, the commander of the strategic command, Sink Stratcom, just told Congress, Nuclear weapons undergird our entire defense policy. They allow us to confront the aggression and coercion of our adversaries. Well, here we are in Ukraine, and guess what? No, they don't. It's exactly the opposite. They're our greatest weakness. The reason we're not intervening right now to stop the slaughter of innocents in Ukraine is because Putin has nuclear weapons. We would be much better off if mm-hmm. nobody had nuclear weapons, we're the largest military power on the planet. The only mm-hmm. way other countries can balance us is by nuclear weapons. We'd be much better off if we got rid of them, which is why, you know, after the end of the Cold War, you saw people who were the Cold Warriors, like Paul Nitzet, Henry Kissinger, George Schultz, Sam Nunn, Will, Bill Perry, saying it's time to get rid of these weapons. We don't need them anymore. And if we don't do this, we're going to face a world that's much more dangerous, much more psychologically disorienting, much, much greater economic consequences. Well, guess what? We didn't do it. We were resisted. 
There was an effort to do it. President Obama gave poetic voice to this vision. We didn't do it because the people who build the nuclear weapons, who staff the nuclear weapons, who think in these terms that this is a great power status, they didn't want to give them up. And here we are. We are now in that world they warned us about. It's an I told you so moment. We told you this was going to happen if we didn't move. So if we get out of this, and I mm -hmm. think we will, I think the odds are that we will, we'll have another chance to take a look at those policies, another chance to move to reduce the, the role and number of nuclear weapons in everyone's national security strategy and move towards a world where we have, as Obama used to say, the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. It seems to me that anything, if this were to, if, if, so we make it through, the odds are for us and we get past this little, this issue. And we then have to start educating people to this fact again. We need to start telling the average American why we don't want nuclear weapons. Exactly. And it has to be, and I think, and your point of we could be avoiding all the hardship that is going on in the Ukraine right now, if we didn't have this threat of nuclear weapons, is such a clear message. I, I'm on a sort of campaign, and the people who've been listening to my podcast on and off, off will, or regularly, I hope, will hear me say, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, I'm desperate to figure out, and maybe it's the writer in me, but what the messaging is to get people to be able to rise and speak truth to our politicians. And if we have to compete with all the big money of the Raytheons or whomever that is of this world, don't mix too much there. Oh, sir. thank you. Um, don't don't overmix. Like, like, don't overmix. If we can create a message like oh, that right. and show images of this is the Ukraine, all of this, all these people that you're at home right now crying about and sad about and sending your hard-earned money to World Central Kitchen about, they might have had a better chance if nuclear weapons weren't there. Exactly. So it's like we have to re-educate an entire new group of people, yes. like kids. Yeah. Well, um, my, my colleague, who's oh, maybe 25 years younger than me, Tom Kalina, has a wonderful op-ed in, in the New York Times this week. He just went online mm -hmm. on Thursday, and it's about exactly this. We have to rethink nuclear weapons. We have to change our understanding of these. And he makes some suggestions for what Biden could do right now that make a lot of sense that get us on the path of rethinking. For example, he says that Biden should declare right now that, and I agree with this, that the U.S. and NATO have no intention of using nuclear weapons first. We're not going to do it. And right. we want you, Vladimir Putin, to make the same pledge. And we want to make this an international norm. Now, he he won't do that. But now we're setting the ground rules for the post-Ukraine war world. You know, this is what the norm should be. Nobody should use nuclear weapons first. Let's, let's take these out of our war plans. They're right, right now integrated into our war plans. It's not just Putin who's got this crazy idea of using nuclear weapons. We do too. Let's right. take them out. <laughs> right, right. We have a Putin-like plan for nuclear weapons. Take them out. And, and that's, a, that's a building block for this. And if and when we get out of this, let's get serious again about reducing the numbers. So you could do this and you'd have tremendous public support behind you because we're all seeing it, right? Like you say, Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and Boeing and General Dynamics, these people have the system wired. 
They totally. run the Pentagon on this. They dot the Armed Services Committee hearings are a joke on this stuff. It's just a bunch of nuclear weapons of good. Uh, uh, uh. And all, <laughs> you know, more. And they actually this hearings in the last weeks, the commanders are coming up during the Ukraine war crisis and they say we need more. We need more nuclear weapons. So that crowd is beating the nuclear war drums. It's there. But look, you know, most of the public doesn't see that. Most of the public doesn't mm-hmm. see the Raytheon propaganda, doesn't get the campaign contributions. They don't care about the contracts in their district. You know, so we have there's more of us than there are members of Congress. And I think, you know, seeing all this, learning the lesson, there's a chance we're going to have a brief policy window after this war to reconsider all this and get us back on track to reducing and eliminating these weapons. We need the equivalent of like the pink pussycat hat. (laughs) (laughs) These marches on Washington. I I think the American public, I like to think that the American people in general um, are at a point where they're under, have a deep understanding of how money has, is really, really impacting things much more than I think we ever did. I mean, we knew there's money in politics, but right now I think we're at a point where I think we are so fed up I speak for I speak for America when I say thank I think you. We're so fed. Sure, <laughs> thank you, America. That we're so fed up with having seen a lack of justice in our own government, with what's happened with January sixth, with Donald Trump, with Mark Meadows, um, and his traveling caravan of electoral possibilities. Hey, yeah. I've got a van, I, you know. So that I think people, if we, if you, we create a strong enough message, we can get the people in the streets with pitchforks and torches. Well, I think that's not right. the tiki, not tiki torches, not those kind of people. LED um, torches, LEDs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> LEDs. Right, exactly. Hey, can I ask you, um, how yeah. much lemon am I putting in? How much lemon are you putting into this in place of I the extract? I put in about a, a, a about a teaspoon or two teaspoons of of lemon just to see what happens, because you don't okay. want to make it too too wet. The thing about extracts is they're sort of condensed, and you're not adding a lot of moisture with them. You know, and so, this, this so, is part of re- re- rethinking nuclear weapons. We have to stop thinking of this as some kind of instrument that keeps us safe, some kind of weapon that keeps us safe. I mean, even if you, you don't have to agree with me that we should eliminate them. You don't have to agree with Pope Francis that nuclear weapons are immoral and, and no one yeah. should have them for any reason, that no nation should base its national security on the threat of killing millions of innocent men, women, and children. That is an immoral position for any nation. So we should get rid of them. That's what the Pope says. Most religious I, leaders I, agree with that. I vote with the Pope there. Me too. <laughs> so, but you don't have to agree with that. You could agree that, look, we're going to need some of them. Sure. You know, see, then the question is, well, how many? How many do you want? You want 10? How about 200? So in, in the early 40s, late 40s, that's how many we had, 200. The Air Force said, we don't need any more. After that, we just run out of targets. Well, we went nuclear nuts in the 50s. And by the time John F. Kennedy became president, we had 20,000, 20,000. And we built up to 33,000, really insane levels. And now we're built down. And now the U.S. and Russia have about 6,000 each, about 2,000 in operational stockpiles. So we don't need all those. So you could agree that we should cut down to how many we need that could protect us from somebody attacking us with nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And that would be roughly, and there have been various estimates about this, maybe 200, maybe 400, you know, Mm -hmm. in that level of weapons that that's what you need to carry out all military missions. Even the the Joint Chiefs of Staff did a study a few years ago that said a thousand, a thousand, that's all we need. 
So you could say, let's cut down to that level. Now, that doesn't eliminate the risk, but it really reduces it. It makes it smaller and smaller. It takes it out of war plans. And now it really is a weapon of last resort in case Will Smith needs ones to defeat the invading alien force. Oh, or exactly. Bruce Willis Which, needs to blow up an asteroid. You know, you can you can have a few in reserve as you move towards this low level. And that's where we have, that's part of the rethinking. You know, just just keep, this as a, you know, break class, use an emergency, not an everyday weapon that you need and integrate into your war plans. Can you uh, review a little bit of the history of, in a sense of how we got here that NATO at one point was much weaker than or uh, much stronger than what was going on in the Soviet Union. In the in the and, and, and so everything built up in the 60s. Yeah, I just right. simply I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm maybe I have blueberries in my brain. I'm not speaking very clearly. No, no, oh, this yeah. no, I, I get it. This is. <laughs> You know, we, we went from the idea of this being sort of a general terror weapon that uh, that we would have in general to then after we got 20,000 of them, and we had them for all kinds of missions. We had nuclear torpedoes, nuclear depth charges, short range, medium range, long range. We even had a nuclear bazooka where you could fire a very small yield nuclear weapon about a quarter of a mile, a quarter of a mile. Why anyone would want to do that is beyond me. Even the army figured it out. and They got rid of it in the 60s. Yeah. But we, we <laughs> this is, it's easy to look back and say, this is insane, which is why you had movies like Dr. Strangelove, you know, 1962, mm-hmm. 64, whenever that was, you know, that just mocked the whole idea. It was crazy. So Robert McNamara and others come in and they say, let's have a more integrated plan. And they develop something called flexible response. Meaning we were afraid that the Warsaw Pact the Soviet Union and its Eastern European allies, now liberated, would mass mm-hmm. together tank divisions that would rush through the Fulda Gap and invade West Germany, and we couldn't stop them. So we needed nuclear weapons to do that. And that was part of our plan. Okay, I disagreed with that, but that was the plan when I started working in Washington. That's what we were talking about. And you'd look at the map and you'd go through the, I had all the classified briefings, You'd come in and you see what we expected and you'd see why we needed to use this and when we would need to use this. Colin Powell writes about this. He was in charge of a nuclear artillery brigade in West Germany. He thought, this is the stupidest thing I ever saw. And he swore to himself, if I ever get in a position of power, I'm going to get rid of these things. And guess what? He did get in a position of power and he did get rid of those things. (laughs) It's in his his wonderful uh, autobiography. But then when the Soviet Union collapses and Colin Powell in 91 is now getting rid of all these things, the idea was we're just going to keep doing that. But we ran up against, I would say, the profit imperative. So you got this combination of people who ideologically want these things, who believe that you have to have them. You have politics where Republicans will attack Democrats for being weak on defense if they do don't spend as much as humanly possible on the military budget, including nukes. And you see that playing out now, right? What's the Republican talking point on Biden? He's weak. Uh, They don't mention Donald Trump. They just talk about it. But you also have a profit (laughs) motive. And and that's part of rethinking this. You got to realize that this is a product that people are selling, that they they make this. We spend about $50 billion a year on nuclear weapons and related programs. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to lose out on. And I think it's a part, I don't think anybody thinks about it from that point of view, because it's almost too frightening to think that people would want to earn money off of this. But that shows me to be about five years old and about as naive as they come. I realize that. And we now have, we're now much, really, just in the last 10, 20 years, we're much more aware of this. 
It started when we mm-hmm. learned that tobacco companies knew they were killing their customers when they sold us cigarettes. That's, that, that's, that's a fossil fuel industry knew they, they were contributing to climate change when they sold us oil and gas. That the pharmaceutical industry knew they were killing their customers when they sold them op- opioids. Well, the defense industry knows that these things will kill not just some people, but the entire human civilization if we ever use these. And so they come up with all these justifications. They hire an, ar- an army of lobbyists. They flood the Congress with campaign contributions. You know, unlike a court, if you're a judge, yeah. you can't try a, a trial where you have a financial interest in the outcome. That doesn't mm-hmm. apply to Congress. Every single member of the House Armed Services Committee, well, most, there's a couple of exceptions like Rokana, take money from defense contractors. And, and if they don't take, and they take it directly, plus they got the, the, the jobs in their district, which is why the people from states where we have nuclear bases are the most vocal about uh, pushing for them, like Deb Fisher from, from uh, Nebraska, for example, home of the Strategic Command. And, and so you see these economic forces, and you got to understand that this is what we're up against. It's not a question of having my strategy logically beat out your strategy. you got to go after the money. You have to cut off that money flow in order to have a chance of getting something close to a rational nuclear policy in this country. I don't mean to sound like some sort of pre-Kibri liberal, but why not? I live in Montclair. I live in Montclair. That's the home of them. The idea that... Um, it's so easy to point at someone like Putin and say, this man is evil for considering using, threatening us with nuclear annihilation. There's very little difference between him and people who make their money off of nuclear weapons. I completely simplified that. Of course, there are reasons for us to have nuclear weapons because they work as defense. And yes, I, I shouldn't tar those people with the same brush as someone like Vladimir Putin, but there is something to be said for wanting to escalate this for your own profit, right? Yes, absolutely. Is there a better way? Is, it is evil, but is there a less, I, I don't know. I, I know that what I'm saying to you is a bit flippant. Is there a less flippant way of approaching the nuclear industrial complex that we have here in the United States and from a more, is there a more rational way of thinking about it? Yes. So number one is to understand that nuclear weapons are not different from everything else that we're dealing with here. And when we talk about getting the money out of politics, this is part of that. So people Mm -hmm. who are involved in the nuclear weapon industry in the, in the sort of think tank world have to stop thinking of themselves as, uh, you know, the next Henry Kissinger or the, the next great theorist who's going to write, you know, the, the brilliant strategy. That's not what the fight is about. The strategic mm-hmm. discussion is just a veneer. It's just a justification for this mountain of contracts. So you have to go after the money. Yes, you have to have a strategic debate. Like we just had the first part of this program was about strategy. What is the mm-hmm. strategy here? What's the logic? But then you have to go at it just like you have to battle climate change. Same thing or, or tobacco or drugs. Big pharma, big tobacco, big fossil, big nuke. And you got to take the mm-hmm. money out of politics. So you got, the nuclear policy people have to understand they got to be part of those movements. They can't stand aside and be, you know, sit in the think tanks in Washington, which basically have been bought off by a flood of but, government and defense contractor grants over the last 20 mm-hmm. years. From when I was first in this, you don't see 
think tanks in Washington really challenging these notions. When's the last big report you ever heard from Brookings or Carnegie um, or CSIS saying we're spending too much money on the military? When's the last time you saw that? Well, the 80s, before they all figured out that they could neuter those think tanks by just giving them grants, mm-hmm. which is what's happened. So we've got to join that fight, you know, go, mm-hmm. go, go, go after uh, the money and link all this to the other big security challenges. I mean, what really threatens us in the world right now? You know, right. it's, it's pandemics, it's climate change, it's social inequity, it's income, mm-hmm. it's global poverty. The big, really, the national security risks, that's what threatens us. And Joe Biden understands that. And that's how he launched his presidency. If you go back to November of uh, 2020, when he introduced mm-hmm. his national security team, this is what Jake Sullivan talked about. We were going to reimagine national security to include mm-hmm. Pandemics, climate change, racial injustice, inequity in all its forms. That's what he said. But they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared for the fierce resistance to that, the the, the big money, the Republican counterattack. So they faltered. Well, they got to regroup, you know, find their strength because they're right. They know in their hearts what we have to do. We, the American people, just have to go stiffen their spines a little bit and give them the courage to go do what they know is the right thing to do. And it is the right thing to do because it's inequity that it always ends up causing, allows people to be, the, the people to be swayed by governments. Like, oh, it's important for us to launch a war against these people because they have what we want, right? Okay. And meanwhile, are you spooning this into your muffin tin yet? Meanwhile, meanwhile I am spooning this into my muffin okay, tin. Okay, good. And I want to show you something here. Every um, everybody at home, since this isn't a TV show, you can't really tell, but I'll show it to you here. Oh. You see oh. that my, some of mine are higher above the level of. Uh, this is a lot of dough, and it fills up your muffin tin. And if you aren't using muffin papers, or even if you are, you might want to actually butter the tops of your muffin pan, so that when it comes time to getting these babies out, they're not completely stuck down. There are people out there who get mad that blueberry muff. I mean, let's talk. Let's talk about something really important. Joe. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I did butter. I buttered the top of my muffin pan. I've already done that <laughs> for exactly that reason because I know this stuff spills over. So this baby is greased. <laughs> yes, and the other thing that um, is important for people, like there are people who get upset, not so much about big money in, um, like you know, politics, but they get upset that blueberry muffins sometimes are streaked with blue. And that's what the, that's how they keep the sane because they don't want to worry about the real stuff. Um, and <laughs> my 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 lesson to all of you is embrace the blue streak. It's you've got a melting blueberry, and um, that's what's going to happen. We all know that what happens to um, frozen blueberries when they break down. And if you look at recipes like the Jordan Marsh recipe, by any chance, are you familiar with Jordan Marsh? She said, asking about the department store in Boston. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, that Jordan Marsh. Sure. I know that Jordan Marsh. It's not a guy. It's not the think tank. Um, (laughs) 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 I sense that you may have some affiliation with that. Yes. 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 You can tell tell from the way I talk that I am a creature of the eyes. It was the eyes. Uh, Oh, it's the con. I am a creature of the Northern Megalopolis, born in Parkchester, the Bronx, grew up in New Haven, educated in Boston, and stayed there for many, many years. And so I had this 
this smear of an accent that <laughs> goes up and down the northern eastern coast of the United States. Yeah, you're like faster than the Estella, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's like a joke about the East Coast. Anyway, these muffins um, can be smeared with glue. It's just the way it's going to be. And Jordan Marsh's recipe, which is what I was trying to get at, Jordan Marsh's recipe, which everybody loves, calls for um, smashing half the blueberries before adding it oh. to the mixture. But it's much better with fresh blueberries. So you're not missing out on something. Your frozen blueberries are going to melt in a way that is going to do something very similar to what that smushing of blueberries does. Can I see your yes. chin again? I want to. I want to see. Make sure I'm not overfilling these. Oh yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, I got that. Yeah, it's going. So away. it's yep. it, it, a little, a little over the top, but not a lot. Just how you should do everything in your life: a little bit over the top, <laughs> but not a lot. <laughs> Folks, there are so many lessons to be learned here. This is, this is why I'm doing your show. This is great. I feel better. I feel so much better. <laughs> and the other, there's, there's one other kind of over the top. The, the place that we should be going over the top in the world is. And it's going to feel vulgar, but the amount of sugar that you dump on top of these muffins once they're in the pan is about, some people say a teaspoon, which even I find is a little much. And I say usually about a half a teaspoon. And I use good old fashioned white sugar. And I use a little bit of nutmeg in mine. I sprinkle a little bit of nutmeg in the sugar and sprinkle it over the top. Um, you might want to go pure sugar. Some people add cinnamon, but I think it takes away from the blueberryness. Just all what you like. And it yeah, I'm helps gonna go it half and half. Good. Half and half. And you keep the tops of these um, muffins, and I'll take a picture so I can post it. You keep the tops of these muffins very craggy because you want them to bake up craggy and you want the sugar to fill in the cracks and make for a very crusty, crunchy top. You ever put cinnamon on top? I sure do. Cinnamon is a great thing to put on top. I sometimes think it detracts a little bit from the um, flavor of the muffin, but I love cinnamon so much that it's a very happy combination. Okay. I would like to take a photograph of you because you are the first, and you like you deserve a special prize for this. You are the first guest I have to wear a chef's jacket, <laughs> a beautiful tan chef's jacket. And it says something over the left pocket. What does it say? A Casa de Cuba. Well, is that I a was restaurant my, where you live? It, 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 not where I live, but I have a friend, uh, Steve Mackler, who's the best cook I know. And I went over to his house for a glass of wine, and we got to talking. His wife joined okay. us. He said, stay. Oh, I'll make something. And he goes to his, like you probably. He turns around, and the next thing I know, I have this delicious meal in front of me. <laughs> As we're oh talking, he cooks this incredible pasta dish. And I tell him that I'm going to do your show. Mm -hmm. He says, well, you got to wear a jacket. You can't wear an apron. <laughs> you got to wear a jacket. No, no, no. So he, pull, he pulls his jacket out of the closet, gives it to me. And that's why I have my jacket. And now I'm going to keep it. Don't tell him. <laughs> no, he'll, ne he'll never know. Steve, he has your jacket. These muffins are about to go in the oven. Do you have any, I guess we sort of have to wrap this up, but do you have any thoughts for those of us in the middle of like, We've talked, I think, very positively about next steps as far as nuclear conflict, as conflict goes, what we should be doing once this is over. Let's talk right now today. What is going on in the Ukraine and what do you think is going to, like, can you predict what's going to happen next? What do you think 
are the next steps if you were in command? And what do you think are the next steps that are going to happen with Putin? Because I talk about him, like, what do you think he's going to do? Does he have the support of his general? So that's about 84 questions. Okay. So first of all, ask your brother. (laughs) (laughs) He thinks about this. So ask him. But I I would say that to the surprise (laughs) of everyone, you know, Putin is not winning this war. He's not losing yet, but the offensive has stalled. I mean, we're over three right. weeks. We're like three and a half weeks in, and the Ukrainians are in counteroffensive right now. So what that means most likely is that he's going to increase the level of violence. He's going to do more of what you see him doing in this targeting. And that's why it's important to give the Ukrainians defensive weapons that can knock out the, the uh, their Russian planes, which they're doing a very good job of, by the way. There were very few planes actually flying, but they need counter-artillery weapons that can go after the artillery, which is doing most of the damage. So increase that to reduce the damage, take that away. I think Putin is probably going to use some some kind of chemical weapon, probably a basic chlorine gas like the Germans used first in World War One to go down and kill those yeah. people in the uh, in the shelters, a terror weapon. And we have to be careful not to over respond to that. So on our side, we have to be careful not to give him an excuse to turn this into a, a, a Russia West war not to give him an excuse to do even more, not to give him an excuse to attack one of the NATO c- countries that, that mm-hmm. are there. So we have to basically stay the course, you know, steady the nerves, stay the course. Don't give in to those voices who want us to directly go in. O- evaluate very carefully things like sending them jet fighters, which I don't think they really need, and instead do things like drones, which again would be increasing the, the capability of the Ukrainian forces, but not going so far as to trigger uh, or justify a Putin uh, escalation. Stay the course. If we do that, I think the Ukrainians can win. I th- well, they can fight the Russians to a stalemate. And there is where the real art comes in. You have to, when you've backed him, Putin into a corner, you have to give him a way out. You can't put him in a position where He's got to go for that nuke. He's got to escalate. You've got to make him an attractive diplomatic offer. And we kind of know what that is. It's on the table. Right. What is that? What is that? Because I, to me, I, I would not know how to negotiate with Putin. Well, it's going to require con- it's going to require concessions on both sides. That's what a good negotiation is. Both sides have to be mm-hmm. able to leave the cable declaring victory. That's going to hurt. The Ukrainians are not going to want to do that. The American public is going to want to punish him, kill him. You know, if you talk to your friends, what they want to do to Putin, right? right? Well, we yeah. can't mm-hmm. do that. Now, maybe there'll be a palace coup. Maybe some FSB agents will, the secret the intelligence service will, will, will take yeah. care of the problem. But I wouldn't bet on that because Putin's an autocrat with an iron grip on that, on that leadership. And so you got to give him something that looks like recognizing the annexation of Crimea, recognizing the independence or maybe annexation of the Donbass region, the two things he, cl- he wanted when he went in. And probably assuring a, a, a situation of armed neutrality for Ukraine. So Ukraine does not join the European Union, does not join NATO. Things that were problematic anyway. I mean, this was at least 10 to 15 years off. So we're not really giving up that much. And Zelensky has indicated that he's willing to do that. And there are talks that are ongoing with Ukraine and Russia. So this is, this is the mix. And in exchange, Russia withdraws, takes everything, pulls out those hulking tank carcasses that you see bring yeah great brings out the dead you know they've killed about at least u.s estimate seven thousand russians already 
the Ukrainians say 14,000, but 7,000 is more than our combat losses in 20 years of Iraq and Afghanistan. So this right. is a huge. I mean, they're, they're suffering here, but they take them all out and pay reparations. You know, that's going to be hard for Putin to swallow, but that's the elements of a deal. You know, that's the mix of things that are in there that can end the, end the war, end the suffering, and then allow us to help rebuild Ukraine and help. Oh, we're then tied into that will be security assurances, real better security assurances this time that will uh, help reassure Zelensky and the Ukrainian people that uh, if attacked again, they'll, p- people will be ready for it and not just the Ukrainians. Right. So the, uh, the whole flank of countries that are that flank Europe yeah. there, I mean, flank Russia will yeah. be ready and flank Ukraine will be ready. Yeah. So that's um, that. And everybody kind of knows this. And the question is getting Putin to the point where he's willing to be serious about talks. It's not like we can snap our fingers and make this happen. It's Putin that's stopping this from happen, happening. Right. And, and Biden, I got to again, Biden is just doing an excellent job. We are so lucky to have a man who spent his whole life on these issues as president now with a very competent team from Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan on down. Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence, Bill Burns, Director of the CIA. Look at the way they've been using intelligence. Just brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, really, mm-hmm. this is some of the best war management uh, I've ever seen. Let's hope they can continue it and resist those calls from the right to go in further or from the left to stop aiding the Ukrainians at all. That's very reassuring. Um, that and maybe a glass of wine or something like that and a blueberry muffin may work to reassure me even further. (laughs) I thank you so much for being here. There are about 100,000 more questions I could ask you. Uh, So maybe you could come on again and we could bake something. Oh, let me me take a photograph of these muffins. That's beautiful. Those are beautiful. He's done a great job, everybody. See, half Um, of the cinnamon, (laughs) half of the cinnamon, all of them top of sugar. You got to have the sugar. (laughs) You got to have the sugar. Um, these are going to bake now until uh, for about 15 to 20 minutes, probably 20 to 25 minutes. But check them, turn them around in your oven so they cook evenly. And please send a photograph and let me know how they turn out. Are you a person to play poker with or not with all your great strategic <laughs> skills? I just need to know. I don't gamble. And I, I, I'm, I'm, anything, bowling, NCAA tournaments, card games, I don't Nothing. gamble. I lose. I lose. I'm I'm too careful. I'm too cautious. <laughs> okay, so the, but your the, your way of estimating the odds in war are better than the way you, you're estimating the odds of like Kentucky winning right. versus not. Okay, right. that's good. So the you only, focus on that stuff. You focus on that stuff. The only way to win is not to play. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much to Joe Serencioni for taking time out of his day to bake and help us feel smarter and more informed on everyone's favorite topic, nuclear destruction. I hope you'll follow Joe on Twitter for more of his insights and leave a review, if you would, of this podcast and sign up for my Substack at marissarodecup.com. Stay tuned and I hope you have an okay week. Thank you so much. Please be safe.